Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Large wildfires are now burning in almost every western state, and the wildfire season has only just begun. Large parts of the West are facing their worst drought in at least 20 years. As we publish this show, parts of the Pacific Northwest are under an excessive heat watch. Several regions may be hit with devastating fires and power outages in the months to come. Jim is away this week. We decided to share a solutions interview we did last year that has special urgency now. It's about the campfire, in Butte County, California, two and a half years ago, which destroyed 95% of the buildings in the town of Paradise within hours. That blaze was the most destructive U.S. wildfire in over a century. Two journalists who reported on that fire and studied the lessons from it are our guests. Heat, Drought, Fires, with Alistair G. and Danny Anguiano. I lived in the area near Paradise for about 10 years. I grew up there and it was an area that was very prone to wildfire. But I didn't know that people always feared this big fire that we saw. That that was something that was quite shocking to me, how people knew that one day this town could be wiped out by fire. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Extreme drought, high temperatures, and fire are reminders that the weather is changing. And because of climate change, worse conditions could be on the way. But, Richard, while climate change does play a really important role here, it's not the only cause of the destruction in recent weeks or in the last few years. Forest management and the thing I think is really important, the movement of so many people into what used to be wilderness areas, those are also major factors that are affecting this whole trend. We're joined by Danny Anguiano and Alistair G. of The Guardian. They're the authors of the recent book, Fire in Paradise. An American Tragedy. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you so much. We're happy to be here. So it was two years ago that the campfire destroyed the town of Paradise. A lot of people think it was just some little mountain town, but it was actually a community of 27,000 people. Virtually every home was destroyed. 85 people were killed. I know you spent a lot of time there. What's it like now? So today, Paradise is kind of a shadow of its former self. It was this suburban settlement in the foothills. 
And now it's a, it's a much smaller place. And what you really see are a lot of empty spaces. You see, you know, a strip mall here and then an empty block. And you kind of feel that that emptiness. It permeates throughout the town. Most of us imagine a wildfire or what people call a forest fire kind of sweeping through and into town. But you make the point that once it got to town, it was something very different. It was an urban fire that jumped from house to house, not just a brush fire or or a forest fire. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, uh, the fire approached town very, very quickly. It was sparked actually by a power line in a in a very isolated river canyon several miles to the east. It was a power line that's operated by the a now infamous electricity and utility called PG&E, which has been responsible for many, many wildfires and various other tragedies, remarkably, in California in the last decade or so. But it was also, uh, it had this very aging power line in this valley. It was approaching 100 years old, this power line, and subsequent investigations found that, in fact, PG&E had very little information about this power line that it had owned for so many decades, and that the inspections were carried out poorly by inexperienced staff. So in a way, it's no surprise that this power line had a malfunction very early on the morning of November 8, 2018, sparked an incredibly quick blaze that ate up at one point almost 400 football fields worth of vegetation a minute as it approached town. When you look at what survived in town, remarkably, although a lot of trees burned, a lot of them, in fact, survived. And once the fire got to town, it became more of an urban fire than a forest fire. And it wasn't the trees that were setting fire to a home. It was homes setting fire to the next home. So it really became a fire that was burning from car to car and from home to home. Alistair, the campfire that destroyed paradise spread incredibly quickly. Was that the thing that was most unprecedented about the Inferno? I think these incredibly quick moving fires are are something that firefighters say that they, not that they've never seen before, but the the way that these very, very severe mega fires um, are breaking out in California right now, that is what firefighters say is unprecedented. And so it, it was the size of the fire. It was the way in which it moved. It was how quickly it took over the town with very little warning. Danny, let's talk about some of the factors that go into these particularly dramatic fires. Most people, when they see these events, they the first thing they think of is climate change. How is a warming climate kind of setting the stage for these events? Right. So so climate change, we know, plays a huge role in these fires. Um, California was a landscape that burns. It always has and it probably always will. Um, but climate change is making us see increasingly destructive fires. So we're seeing fires that are burning hotter and more intensely. And that's largely because California is becoming drier and hotter. So as temperatures change, what we're seeing is not so much a fire season anymore. It seems like it's almost spread throughout the whole year, as is, you know, where we have chosen to develop houses. You know, we have more houses built in areas that are at greater risk for fire. So we see more destruction. These are people, some of whom really want to live in these beautiful wooded areas and be close to nature. But also what we're seeing is a crisis of housing affordability in the state that is increasingly pushing people to areas that are more affordable, like these rural foothill communities, but are also more at risk. So it's a real trade-off of, okay, I can afford to live here, but I also know that I'm living with a greater risk. 
In last year's interview with Danny and Alistair, we asked about President Trump's comments on severe wildfires. He complained about poor forestry management. Is he right? Is there a strong connection between how forests are managed and the impact of fires on people? There is an element of truth in what he says. And and the, the element of truth is that for a century or more, California and other Western states, there's been a policy of fire suppression that has existed there. So previously, in the in the early 19th century and before that, California burned relatively freely. There were lots of fires that were sparked by lightning. Uh, Native Americans used fire as a tool to clear the landscape, to make it easier to hunt there, and also to reduce the brushy undergrowth. So the risk of more severe fire was reduced. But in the earlier 20th century, there were lots of destructive fires in the American West, and it sparked this policy of what we call fire suppression, where we have an almost paramilitary firefighting force that's become extremely adept at putting out wildfires very quickly. The paradoxical impact of this fire suppression policy has been actually to make fire more likely more severe when it does break out, because we've created conditions now in the forest where there are far more trees than there would have been in John Muir's time. The undergrowth is much thicker. It was once said that in the 19th century, you could ride through a forest on a horse and not get tagged on either side by branches. Now that's definitely no longer the case. And so where I would differ from President Trump is that he has suggested that logging is the solution to this kind of forest management problem. Actually, that's not the solution. Logging takes the larger, sturdier trees by preference. And those are the trees that are precisely more able to resist fire. And so those are the trees we shouldn't be removing. So there's an element of truth in what he says, but we differ in the solutions. So speaking of solutions, uh, I remember um, when I was a rock climber in Yosemite Valley in the early 1980s, seeing controlled burns. And you would come into the valley, there'd be smoke in the air, and there'd be a few acres that were just quietly smoldering. It wasn't like a forest fire. And we've all heard about controlled burns being the solution to this, but it turns out they haven't really been employed that widely in California, right? Danny, tell us about why this idea of controlled burns has not been implemented on a big enough scale. So I, I think, you know, part of it is it, it's such a culture shift. You know, Alistair talked about about CAL FIRE's mandate, which is to put fires out. So CAL FIRE is the state agency that yes. manages firefighting on state lands. Correct. 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 Um, and so their job is to extinguish fires. And it's only, I think, really in the last 20 or so years that we've started having these conversations about the fact that the landscape needs fire. Um, but there are all sorts of factors that can prohibit agencies from doing more prescribed burns. You know, part of it is the impact on the air quality. The other part of it is it's difficult for people to become comfortable with the idea of seeing fire. We're just not accustomed to seeing fire in the landscape and not seeing it as a threat. Are state, local, and federal authorities overzealous in the way that they approach putting out fires? I think there are increasingly fires that the firefighting agencies will let smolder if they deem them not to be a threat to communities. But in terms of how much prescribed fire we have in the landscape, it's on the order of tens of thousands of acres, and there are 105 million acres in California. It's clearly not enough. Historically, it was estimated that as much as 
four to five million acres of California might burn per year. So there is a, a huge amount of fire that we need to put back into the landscape. And interestingly, some states are actually very successful at this. Remarkably, Florida has a huge amount of prescribed fire in the landscape, also on the order of millions of acres. What this suggests is that maybe we are being overzealous. I'm fascinated by by California history and the fact that Native American tribes uh, were quite deliberate about their use of setting fires. Uh, How did they control the landscape more successfully in some ways than officials have done in the last 100 years? Prior to, to Europeans arriving in California, there were as many as 300,000 Native American people living in the area we now call California, speaking perhaps 100 languages. There was a huge amount of cultural activity in the landscape, including uh, prescribed burns. And remarkably, some of the first Spanish explorers who came to California in the logs of their uh, of their journeys, they reported seeing smoke uh, on coming from the landscape. So it, it was a feature of some of those those first sightings of California. Danny, what surprised you the most in your reporting for the Guardian and also in writing this book? You know, there there were a couple of things that really surprised me. Um, I I lived in the area near Paradise for about ten years. I grew up there. And it was an area that was very prone to wildfire. But I didn't know that people always feared this big fire that we saw. That that was something that was quite shocking to me, how people knew that one day this town could be wiped out by fire. And then, you know, when we really got into the reporting of it, talking to people who found themselves trapped on a road, fire burning all around them, it was it was those firsthand accounts of just how fast this moved how quickly it overtook them, how people really had almost no time. As soon as they saw flames, there were some people who got in their cars and left. And even then, they just found themselves being chased by fire. The town did have an evacuation plan. And as you say, people were conscious of fire and aware that this is something they had to prepare for. But why didn't the plan work better? The town had an evacuation plan, and it split the town of 27,000 people into a number of evacuation zones. And you could sign up for a robocall. And the idea was that if there was an emergency, you would get a call, depending on which zone you're in, and they would evacuate zone by zone. That was the idea. In the event, this fire that approached them, it didn't just come at them from one direction. The fire had this very uh, extreme behavior where it would send embers very, very far in front of it. They would spark spot fires, is, is what they're known as. Those spot fires would then grow and it would create this lattice of fire that really came at people from all directions in the town. And so the town had never prepared for a situation in which it had to evacuate not just one zone at a time, but every zone at a time. And it also hadn't prepared for the fact that its phone lines might go down, that the cell phone towers might get burned up by the fire itself. And so in the event, only a small number of robocall warnings went out. Not everyone had signed up for those warnings in the first place. And then you had this fire necessitating the evacuation of every zone at once. And it was just a recipe for chaos. As the emergency planner for the town told us, we prepared for a fire. We just never prepared for a fire this big. 
We're going to talk more about solutions, which is what we do on our podcast in just a minute. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's been so much talk about how these fires are at least in part the result of climate change. But even if we act fast and drastically reduce carbon emissions within the next few years, that's not likely to change the climate quickly or reduce droughts in California, Oregon, or Washington, right? No, I'm sure, as you know, many climate scientists would say that we've baked in a certain amount of warming into the system now just by the amount of carbon that we have released into the atmosphere. The climate scientists that we spoke to for the book, what they say is it would be inaccurate to say that the fires we're seeing now, that we can expect these kinds of fires in the future. What's more, the reality is that the system is now so unstable and is growing more unstable that the only thing we know for sure is that we don't quite know how bad it might be in the future. The focus on climate change On the one hand, it's good because it can help motivate people to support policies to reduce carbon emissions. On the other hand, do you ever worry that it maybe gives the public a sense of helplessness, that there's also, in addition to that, very concrete steps and policies we should be supporting to reduce the risk of fires right now? Danny, what do you you think? I I do share that concern. Um, Climate change, as we know, is playing a huge role in these fires, but there are actual you know, steps we can take, as you said, um, to try to manage these, you know, controlled burns, um, better management of our forests on state and federal land. Those are steps that we we have to take, you know, along with taking action to reduce carbon emissions. Those two things have to go hand in hand. Alistair, you've said that disaster planners aren't thinking apocalyptically enough. What do you mean? Well, the fires that, for instance, Paradise prepared for was the kind of fire that you might get 20 years ago. And it was the kind of fire that, well, firefighters would have been able to get a handle on. And what's so interesting, actually, is that in Paradise, in a in a community meeting, just a couple months before the fire, someone asked the mayor in a, in a community meeting, the mayor of Paradise, do you think we're ready for a fire should it come? And the mayor said, yes, I think we've got a good plan. We're ready. And someone who was opposing her in the local mayoral uh, elections stood up and said, no, you're thinking about a fire that we would have had 20 years ago. And yes, our plan is fine for that kind of fire, but it's not fine for the kind of fires that we've seen recently, the fire tornado and so on. And so I, I think that 
that's precisely the point is that now what we're seeing is it's very easy for a whole town to whole suburbs to be wiped out. We've seen that in the very, very recent fires in Oregon. We saw at least five towns uh, wiped off the map. We saw two more towns in California devastated. There was a town in Washington state that was devastated. And I think that we, we simply haven't, it ha- we haven't gone into the mindset that, that these places are not inviolate anymore and that we can very easily have a fire invade a very populated area. Let's get into some specifics on these solutions. Danny, you'd said that, you know, in addition to fighting climate change, there are concrete things we can do. Let's start with individual houses. It's not written in stone that a house needs to burn to the ground just because a wildfire passes through its neighborhood, right? That's exactly right. There are things that homeowners can do to try to protect their homes. Um, and that's one of the things that some of the experts I've spoken with have tried to make clear is, you know, there aren't always things you can do to save your home from a hurricane or a tornado, but there are real concrete steps to be taken with wildfires. Um, part of that is creating something called defensible space, um, which basically means clearing brush, dead trees from around your property, as well as not not having stuff stacked up outside of your house. That can be really dangerous in a fire situation. It can catch on fire and then catch your house on fire. So that's important. Um, The other thing that's really important is the actual construction of the house itself. So what we saw in the campfire generally is that newer homes that were built after 2008, when new policy came into effect, those homes generally had a better chance of surviving than homes built before then. So things like fire-resistant roofing, fire-resistant siding on the house, um, closed gutters, um, closed attics. Because the big thing is when you're dealing with a wind-driven fire like the campfire, you want to prevent embers from getting into your home. Um, And so by doing that, that can see real results. Could we be doing more, though? For instance, could we be limiting the number of people who can live in these communities? Well, there, there are other things we can do, too, though. I mean, we can incentivize retrofitting older homes, right? A lot of the housing stock in these areas is older. It's, you know, 1970s or 1950s. And so if the state and policymakers were to provide incentives to people to retrofit their homes, they would better survive fires. But what I tend to lean toward before getting into don't tell people to build in certain areas is this state really needs to invest in affordable housing. And I think if we do that, we won't have to tell people don't live in these areas to the same degree because they'll have an affordable option where they won't have to work so hard to ensure their home will survive in a wildfire because it'll be in an area that's lower risk. Power lines are more dangerous in California than they are in most places. What can we do to make those power lines a little safer? Well, what's remarkable is that since 1980, the only source of ignition of wildfires to have increased is in fact power lines. All others have gone down. And the issue has been in particular with PG&E, which has tens of thousands of miles of power lines strung up through California, and they're maintained by thousands of what are called linemen who are tasked with, first of all, clearing uh, vegetation around the lines to ensure that a tree is not going to fall on the line to ensure that there's no brush underneath it. And they're also charged with the maintenance of those lines. The issue in the case of PG&E is that there's always been a tension with PG&E because it's an investor-owned utility. Questions have always been asked, is it spending enough money on safety or is it 
giving that money back to uh, its investors in the in the form of dividends and whatnot. And people accuse PG&E of putting profit over safety. And there's even suggestions in the wake of the campfire that it was, for instance, falsifying records. So in the case of the campfire, PG&E reported that it had, quote unquote, inspected several power lines that did in fact not exist. They had fallen down several years before. So there's really... Um, there's, there's a lot of doubt and concern around whether PG&E is doing its job. And the issue that's come up in the wake of the campfire is should PG&E be broken up? You know, what can we do to make PG&E a more of a safe power company? Is California doomed? I don't think so. Um, as a lifelong Californian, I don't uh, don't subscribe to that ideology. I think we're a state that's constantly confronted with challenges and natural disasters, but there is a reason that people choose to live here. And I think it's a state worth saving. You know, I, I'm really inspired by the optimism of the people of paradise. I spent some time there and, and people, as I said, they were, they were scared. Smoke was hanging over the town and it was a, a very familiar, alarming sight to them, but they loved their town. Um, and it wasn't just about, you know, where they lived. It was about the people. And so despite, countless loss, despite losing friends and relatives and homes and businesses, they love their way of life and they are determined to bring it back. And I think that's inspiring for all of us in California dealing with disasters. I would also say that although the scenes from California look apocalyptic, it's worth remembering that before Europeans arrived in California, smoke in the skies was ever-present. There were lots of fires. And so I don't think the fact that it, it looks apocalyptic is a sign that something is terribly amiss. Maybe we're just going back to what the state was before. I would just add, um, to go off of what Alistair is saying, I think when we act like it's the end of the world, it robs us of agency and the ability to change things. And we, we do have that power. We can, we can change this. We can save lives. Danny, very well said. Thank Thanks you. for joining us, both of you, on How Do We Fix It? And uh, the book, uh, Fire in Paradise, it's a good read. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And now to our recommendation. Jim, book, film, video, or podcast? <laughs> book this week for you, Richard. You know, I've gotten into bird watching in the last couple of years, and you don't just go out and look at birds. You go out and kind of step into this river of time because the birds are constantly changing. And the book I want to recommend is called A Season on the Wind Inside the World of the Spring Migration. You've got billions of birds flying across North America going just impossibly long distances. And if one of them happens to land in your yard for a day or two, it's really like a little miracle. This book really gets into that. It's just a wonderful read by one of the most respected writers about birding, Ken Kaufman. Sounds great. Now to our conversation. Jim, you've been reporting and writing about fires in the West for a while now, so I kind of want to interview you. <laughs> what are your thoughts? It's about time. I've been waiting, Richard. <laughs> What's taking what, you so long? <laughs> what are your thoughts about what we can do practically um, given this tragedy that's unfolded? Yeah, I have given this a lot of thought. 
you can be very concerned about carbon emissions and climate change and and understand that we need to do things about that. But that shouldn't detract from also looking at all the other factors that go into increasing fire risk, especially this buildup of fuels because of the, the, the many decades of fire suppression and bad fire policy. And the in a sense, kind of overpopulation of some high-risk areas for people living in conditions that are are prone to to burn. So, some of the things I think we can do is first rethink how we develop this this what's known as the wildland urban interface. These areas where people live in really neat homes that are kind of bumping right up against the edge of wilderness. The town of Paradise, really, it's a small city. Twenty-seven thousand people is not a small town. They, that town was really like that. It was it was really nestled right there in the foothills of the Sierras, and that made it very risky. So are we pushing people out there? Danny made that point that the absence of affordable housing is pushing a lot of people, especially a lot of retired people, up into these more rural areas where housing is cheaper, but it's also riskier. Maybe we should rethink the zoning in in California cities that are notoriously opposed to building multi-story apartment buildings and things like that, that could make housing more affordable. And then I thought the discussion of what you can do to make houses more fire resistant was spot on. It is entirely possible to build and maintain a house or even retrofit a house so that the fire comes, passes around the yard and moves on and leaves the house intact. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producers, Miranda Schaefer, were a production of Davies Content. Our podcast firm uh, consults with both companies and nonprofits. Check out what we can do for you if you want to make a podcast at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 